can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to look at Hebrews 8, verses 7 through 13 this morning. Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. One of the greatest controversies in Christianity in the last 500 years has been answering or has been the answer to uh, a question that goes like this. Do works have anything to do with the basis of our salvation? Do works, good works, have anything to do with the basis of our salvation? And the biblical answer to that question is absolutely yes. Now before I get fired, (laughs) let's look at this text this morning and I hope that answer will become more clear. Hebrews 8, verses 7 through 13. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let me pray one more time. Father, we are people in need of your mercy. And you give us life in your word. As we look to your word now in these next moments together, Father, give us life in your word And as a result, have mercy on us as new life comes. Would you give us focus and would you give me clarity? In Jesus' name, amen. This is a unique text this morning in some ways. Five of the seven verses in Hebrews this morning are a quotation from the Old Testament. 
So it's kind of trying to figure out, is this a sermon from Hebrews or is this a sermon from the book of Jeremiah? The author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Why is the author of Hebrews quoting such a long section of, of Hebrews, or sorry, such a long section of Jeremiah here? If you remember, beginning back in, in chapter 7, uh, he began discussing Jesus' role as high priest. Uh, this, this Old Testament uh, institution, this Old Testament role that, that Jesus fulfills. Jesus is our high priest. He is our perfect and eternal mediator between God and us. And Jesus' priesthood is not like the Levitical priesthood that's described in the Old Testament. Jesus' priesthood is more like that of this mysterious figure Melchizedek that, that Abraham encounters back in Genesis 14. And, and the author of Hebrews, his point in chapter 7 and moving into chapter 8 is that we have this superior, eternal high priest in Christ Jesus who mediates and advocates for us in the presence of God right now. His ministry does not place, take place in the symbolic throne room on earth, the, the Old Testament tabernacle. His ministry for us on our behalf takes place in the very presence of God in heaven. There a man stands, a man like you and me, but glorified, advocating for us, his people. And verse 6 says, Christ has obtained this ministry that is much more excellent than the Old Testament priests. But just as it is a new kind of priesthood that Christ has, uh, it is a priesthood that is based on a new covenant. Not the Mosaic covenant, not the old covenant, Sinai covenant, the one where we get the Levitical priesthood. Uh, it is a new covenant. And an understanding of the new covenant provides tremendous clarity as, as, we, as, we, as we understand further the solution God has to our ultimate problem. And as, as we try to understand how the Bible unfolds God's plans and instructions for us, and as we try to put together these, uh, these significant biblical themes of, of works and grace and God's mercy. So this morning, it's, it's pretty simple. We're going to look at the, the Old Covenant, spend most of the time or more of our time looking at that, and then we're going to turn and look at the, the New Covenant and the implications of each that we gather from this text here in Hebrews this morning. So as, as we first turn to analyze the Old Covenant, let's begin by answering a, just, just an important question before we go further. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? A covenant is, is an agreement and it's an agreement that administrates and supports a relationship. So I'll say it again. A covenant is an agreement that administrates and supports a relationship. As we look at covenant in the Bible and in, and in ancient uh, Near Eastern literature, uh, we, we see that covenants were made. They, had, they could have a number of different features. They might, they might have definitions of the scope of the relationship or, or the purpose of the uh, relationship. A lot of times a covenant would have stipulations or requirements for the two parties or the two people entering to, into covenant with one another. 
Uh, a lot of times there, there, there would outline consequences for, for failing to meet those requirements or, or, or consequences for what would happen if, those, if the agreement was broken or abandoned. So we might think of today, uh, modern day uh, legal contracts. Uh, you might think of something even as simple as uh, if you've ever rented an apartment or a house, you probably sign some sort of agreement, some sort of rental agreement. Right, and what's happening there? In one sense, you're you're entering into a relationship with someone else, but in order for this relationship to work, you you haven't you put something down on paper that you agree to uh, beforehand. Uh, we don't have many things that we don't think in covenantal terms today. Even even the idea of modern uh, modern day legal agreements are, are a little too formal. Uh, right, we don't. You don't really have much of a relationship with your landlord, typically, depending on what what kind of situation, uh, what situation you're in. Our, our legal contracts tend to be more formal than uh, uh, a covenant, uh, but then our informal relation, our, our informal relationships, they they tend to be. Uh, we don't we don't really regulate those with anything. So so probably the closest example that we could get today in our own experience that's just widespread. Yeah, it would be it would be marriage. Uh, entering into marriage can be enter, understood as entering into a covenant. Remember, covenant covenant is about relationship. A covenant administrates and supports a relationship. So, if you think about it, before you're married, do you have a relationship? Yeah, I mean, I mean, normally you do, right? Uh, before you, there's a relationship that already exists before you're married. So why do you get married if there's already a relationship? There's lots of reasons, even biblical reasons we give for that. But, but, but one of the reasons is uh, uh, because of what marriage is, uh, the relationship is actually strengthened by entering into this, this marriage covenant, right? When, when you get married, you're actually making an agreement with someone else, right? Uh, it's one thing for uh, a guy to, who, who has a girlfriend that he loves to sit down and, and express all of his feelings for her and to write to her, I will love you forever, right? But, but it's another thing for that man then to go before the state and to sign a marriage license that says everything that I have is yours and everything of yours is mine. Uh, It's another thing to stand before God and your family and the church and to vow your commitment to give yourself solely and exclusively to this one other person in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, to love this person, to cherish this person as long as we both shall live. The, the marriage commitment filed at the courthouse and vowed before God and before the people who you love most and who love you most, that changes the dynamic of your relationship. That changes something. Uh, your relationship's no longer founded just on uh, your emotions or your feelings or your, or your circumstances. Uh, your relationship now is supported and even in a way administrated by an agreement. And surprisingly, although that might sound cold and formal, surprisingly, the formal aspect of this doesn't take away from the relationship. It actually adds to the relationship. It, it, it deepens it. Entering into a marriage 
It is entering into a, is enter, it's a covenant, and, and the covenant doesn't make the relationship weaker. It actually makes your relationship with your spouse stronger than if you're just to move in together and do life together like so many do. And covenant, this word covenant, this concept of covenant is, is what God uses to describe how he relates to us. Covenant describes how he related to Adam and Eve and then to Noah after the flood, to, to Abraham and his physical and spiritual descendants, to the, the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, to King David. And, and covenant describes how God relates to us today in Christ. So we need to understand what, what, this, what this means. And, and we get a, a clear understanding of that through this text in Hebrews uh, the, the author here in chapter 8, after explaining the glory of Christ and, and, and Christ's high priesthood in heaven, which is far better than the old Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament, uh, he, and, and he's, he's, he's the mediator. He's not just, he's not just a, a new kind of priest. He's also a mediator of a new covenant, of a new kind of agreement, of a new kind of a, a, a agreement that administrates and supports the way God is going to relate to us. So what is the old covenant? As we, as we look at these Look at these verses. Uh, we see a number of different characteristics. We look at verse 6. We can see that the Old Covenant is uh, in some way inferior. Inferior to the, to the New Covenant. So it's, it's something where something better came afterward. Uh, it's called the First Covenant in verse 7. If you see that, by First Covenant... Uh, he doesn't mean that it's the very first one. He means that it's the one that came earlier or, or beforehand. Uh, the, the, the Mosaic Sinai covenant, the, the covenant God made with his people at Sinai, is not the very first covenant we find in the Bible, but it is the covenant that precedes the, the, the covenant that uh, Jeremiah refers to or prophesies, the new covenant. Uh, the author uh, also indicates that this, this covenant is associated with Moses. That becomes uh, pretty clear in verse 9. Uh, he mentions Moses up in verse 5, right? The old, the old Sinai covenant included laws that were given to God's people through Moses at Mount Sinai. Uh, we also see as we look at verse 13 that the, the, the old covenant is obsolete. The new Oxford American Dictionary defines obsolete as no longer produced or used or out of date. And the author says in verse 13, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the old covenant is inferior. It's first in the sense that it came beforehand or came earlier. It's associated with Moses and it's becoming obsolete. But that leads us to the main characteristic that the author of Hebrews wants us to see about the old covenant, at least in this text. The characteristic he sheds light on is the fact that the Old Covenant is faulty. It's faulty. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Uh, you don't start looking for a new phone or for a new car or for a new job or for a new anything if the one you have is faultless. 
And it's as if the author of Hebrews says, uh, I'm not the first person to say that the old covenant is faulty. God says so too. And this is when he quotes Jeremiah 31. In verse 8, he says, For he, God, finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming when I will establish a new covenant. So why is this covenant faulty? Why is the old covenant faulty? Did, uh, did, did God design a bad covenant? Did he, did he need a second try at one before he got it right? Uh, did God make a commitment in the first covenant that was a bit too steep for him? Uh, did he bite off more than what he could chew with the covenant he made at Sinai? Uh, maybe as God uh, <laughs> cooked up this covenant, so to speak, maybe he added too many ingredients, or maybe he forgot to put some in. Maybe he put in too many laws, or maybe he forgot to put in grace. Is that what's wrong with the old covenant? No. No, to understand what's wrong with the old covenant, we need to look at the people and we need to note, or we should note, that these are people who are just like us. These are people who are just like us. Look at verses 8 and 9. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Notice four things in these verses. The blame the circumstances, the response, and the result. Four things, quickly, the the blame. In verse 8, the author of Hebrews identifies the source of the fault. It is with them. That is a plural them. It is with them. That is the source of the fault with the covenant. It is the people. It is not with God. Verse 7 Right? In verse 7, we see that the old covenant, it's, 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 the, the covenant is described as, as faulty in verse 7. But when we go to verse 8, we see that the source of the fault is with the people. He finds fault with them. We'll come back to that. That is where the blame lies for the fault in this covenant. But how about the circumstances? Look at verse 9. This new covenant is contrasted with the former Sinai covenant, right? Verse 9, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The, if, if you remember, this is, a, this is a critical story that comes up all again and again and again. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. And what do they do? They cry out to God for rescue, for relief, for salvation. And God hears their cries And and he responded in extravagant grace and power, delivering them from Pharaoh. Notice the imagery that God uses to paint the picture of what he did here. It says, he led them by the hand out of the land. Israel was was vulnerable. They were were naive. They were lost. almost, Almost like a little child. And God reached out, grabbed their hand, and led them out of danger to safety. They did not earn this. 
They did not earn this. This was an act of God's sovereign grace. And, and, he, and he pledged himself to them. Uh, when, the first time Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let, let God's people go. Do you remember what Pharaoh says initially? The first response is, not only no, but I'm increasing the workload of them. Let them, let them work more. And Moses returns and he goes to God and he says, what is, what is happening? This is, this is not going well. Here's how God responds to Moses when that happens. This is in Exodus 6, verse 6. God says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And then listen to what he says in verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. It almost sounds like marriage vows. I take you to be my wife. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. He judges, or I'm sorry, he pledges his faithfulness to them. And he follows through with his promises. He delivers them out of Egypt. He leads them to Mount Sinai and he enters into this, this covenant relationship with them. If they will keep themselves holy and spiritual, spiritually clean by keeping his laws and commands, he will in turn bless them and even grant them the joy of his holy presence. If they will be faithful to him, he will be faithful to them. These are the circumstances of the old covenant, which leads us to the result of what happened. We continue in verse 9, the end of verse 9. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The people were not faithful to the Lord. They, they put their trust and their hope in other gods. They followed the nations around them and sought their false deities. They disregarded the law of the Lord and they, they took for granted the privileges that were given them by grace. And in one sense, it shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't have even been a surprise to them. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, the last book of the law, which contains the, the records and stipulations of the Old Covenant, there's this notable progression discussing the people's hearts. This is, this is really, really interesting. If you've ever noticed this heart theme in the book of Deuteronomy, right? Deuteronomy means second law. So it's a second giving of the law. This is with the second generation after they wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And they're about to go into the promised land and inherit all the blessings of the Sinai Covenant. But there's this issue, there's this, there's this discussion, this progression of discussing the, the status of the people's hearts. Remember, covenant is about relationship, right? Covenants bring us into relationship with God, and relationships involve our hearts. So it's not surprising in Deuteronomy is where, is where we read, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. However, it's also in Deuteronomy that God laments the state of Israel's hearts. And in Deuteronomy 5.29, after recounting how the people 
uh, committed themselves to God and how they, how they committed to hearing God's word and doing all of God's word. God says in Deuteronomy 5, 29, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Oh, that they had such a heart always. God knows all things. He knows their hearts. He knows the future. He knows what will happen. But then as we move through Deuteronomy, there's this progression on the theme of the people's hearts. So in 529, oh, that they had such a heart. But then after lamenting their hearts in chapter 5, here's what he tells them. He, he, he tells them what they need to do about it in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 10:16, God says, To them, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. He says, work on your hearts. That is what it's going to take to stay faithful to him. But then at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, there there is an acknowledgement that the people don't have what it takes in themselves to do this. In Deuteronomy 29, 4, Moses says, writes, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. At the end of the day, the only place they can find the hearts that they need is in God himself, from God himself. The book of Deuteronomy, as we, as we read the book of Deuteronomy, it reveals to us that our sin problem is a heart problem. It's not primarily an intellect problem. It's not particularly a behavioral problem. It is a heart problem. The biggest problem in your life is not your upbringing. It's not your social status. It's not your circumstances. It's not politics or the state of geopolitical conflict. The biggest problem in your life is what you love and what you don't. What do we love? We love ourselves. We love ourselves. And we love the things in this world and what we can get out of this world for ourselves. If we are honest, that is what we love. And the ancient Israelites were the exact same way. So what happened in the Old Covenant? God pledged himself to his people. He rescued them by grace out of slavery. He gave them the most privileged position in all the earth. He made a covenant with them. And the stipulations of the covenant were blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Garden of Eden-like blessings for obedience. And return to slavery like curses. For disobedience. So you can read these in, in Deuteronomy 28. They're also in, in Leviticus 26. It actually outlines them twice in the law. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. And if God says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. 
And blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. And it goes on and on from there. Then in verse 15, it switches. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out comprehensive blessing and comprehensive curses. And the result, the result of that covenant is verse 9, Hebrews 8, 9. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. But there was hope even way back in Deuteronomy, right? In chapter 5, it was, oh, that they had such a heart as this. And in chapter 10, it was, circumcise your hearts. And in chapter 29, it was, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart. But then in Deuteronomy 30, God gives them hope of the good that can come yet, even after all the curses come and overtake them, even after their failure and unfaithfulness. God says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. You see the progression? Oh, that they had such a heart. Circumcise your heart. The Lord has not given you a heart, but one day the Lord your God will circumcise your heart which leads us to the new covenant secondly the new covenant god's response to the broken old covenant is a new and better covenant a new and better agreement that administrates and supports this relationship god has with his people but with better promises and the characteristics of this covenant is this just as we're going to look at it here in this text is, is, is three things, new hearts, new membership, and new blessings. Hearts, membership, and blessings. Let's look at those quickly. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. It's interesting. He doesn't say, I, I'm going to write up a new covenant and I'm going to make it a little bit more realistic. Uh, it's not going to matter so much what they do. We're going to create a little bit more leniency, a little more workable for these people. He doesn't, he doesn't, that's not how he does it. He doesn't say, you know, this time I'm not going to ask me to, I'm not going to ask them to love me so much. No. God's laws do not go away. God's goal for his purposes do not change to bring us into a covenant relationship with him. The covenant is still about 
a relationship. And the difference is God's laws and the new covenant are no longer going to be merely external to us, but they are going to be in us. God does what he promised to do in Deuteronomy, performing spiritual heart surgery when he said, I will circumcise their hearts. I will write my laws on their hearts. It's not just the law outside of us, it's the law inside of us. And he does so, we know, by indwelling us with his spirit who gives us new life and a new nature and new affections and new desires. What does Jesus say in John 14? Some of the kids who come on Wednesday nights might, might know this, right? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But then Jesus says, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. On the basis of the new covenant, the spirit is not only just alongside of us, not just pushing us along, but the spirit is in us, putting the laws of God's on our minds, put, writing the laws of God's on our hearts so that what can finally be true, what can finally be true, how does verse 10 end? So that I will be their God and they shall be my people. What the end result of all God's plans have always been, we shall be his people and he shall be our God in a covenant relationship forever. This was not possible under the Levitical priesthood of the Old Covenant that was mediated by Moses. The new covenant promise, new covenant promises new hearts. Second, the new covenant promises new membership. Look at verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. What, is, what does this mean? What's this getting at? Is this, does this mean we don't have a need for teachers and leaders anymore? Right? So you have the Holy Spirit now instructing your heart, so you don't need to learn from, from others? Of course not. The book of Hebrews is a book written to instruct others who have the Holy Spirit, right? Five, five chapters later, he's going to instruct these Christians to obey and submit to their leaders. We have other New Testament writings that tell us that teaching is a gift of the Holy Spirit, which, which that the means that what's happening here is not telling us to stop looking for, that you're just fine on your own. No, it's, it's, it's contrasting again the old and the new. In the old covenant, you were born into the people of God physically, and so what that led to is you had members of the people of God who tried to keep the covenant, and then you had members of the people, who got, people of God who broke the covenant. Uh, and in the old covenant, you had, to, you had to exhort your brother and your neighbor and say, know the Lord, because they really might not know him. And they're in the people of God. In the new covenant, that, that twofold, this, this sort of two-partitioned, two-fold membership is, is gone. All the people know God. They all keep the covenant because his laws are written on their hearts. This is one of the main reasons, just as a side note, this is one of the main reasons why Baptists don't baptize babies. 
In the old covenant, all male children received the sign of the covenant. So that you had people who had the sign of the covenant who both, uh, some of them would grow up and keep the covenant, and then you had some of who would grow up and, and break the covenant. But in the new covenant, we apply this initial sign of the covenant not to not to anyone just because they're born into our families. We, we give the sign of the covenant to those who profess to know the Lord. I'd like to say more on that, but I won't right now. In the new covenant, also it says, all know him from the least of them, from the least to the greatest. Meaning that there's no more hierarchy in terms of our access to God. We all know God. It's not like the Levitical system that we see described in the book of Leviticus, especially in the book of Numbers, even just how they structured their camp, right? You had the tabernacle where God dwelt, and then the people who could be closest to God were the priests, and then the next closest people were the Levites, right? And then it was the heads of the tribes, and then it was the, the clean people, and then it was the unclean people, right? In the new covenant, no, we all know God. We all have access to God from the least of us to the greatest through Christ our high priest. So new hearts, new membership, and thirdly, new blessings. Verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So what, is, what was the arrangement of the first, the first covenant? Blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. How many Israelites truly and fully were faithful to the covenant? None fully. None fully. In the the words of Hebrews 7.19, for the law made nothing perfect. No one was perfected by the law under the old covenant. But what is the arrangement of the new covenant? Blessings and curses? No, it's blessings and blessings. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Mercy here is just interesting to note. It's not the typical word that gets translated mercy. The word mercy here is in the same word group that we get the word propitiation. That big exciting word, which all it means is wrath bearer. Right? When God says here that he will be merciful toward their iniquities, he is saying that he will atone for their sins. God sent his only begotten son to live a perfectly righteous life, faithful to all of God's covenant, to die in the place of covenant law breakers. Like you and me. And rise from the dead and ascend into heaven so that for anyone who will trust in him, he will remember your sins no more. The most, one of the most important questions you could ask yourself this morning. Does God, is God remembering my sins? Is God remembering my sins? Or has he put your sins away in Christ? In the new covenant we have new hearts. We have full membership and we have only blessings and no curses. And as we reflect on the glory and wonder of this new relationship, that, that, this, this, this new agreement that God has made that administrates and supports our relationship with him, just a few implications. First of all, as we think about our relationship with God, Christians are always inviting others to have a relationship with God. Right? We like to say, 
Uh, it's about relation. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. And that's good. We, we are. We should invite people to have relationship with God. But we should recognize that can be confusing because when we say relationship, a lot of times people can think human relationships. That's the whole context of what we have for relationships. And we might think we can relate to God just like we relate to anything or to anybody else. We can have a relationship with God, but it's through God's covenantal terms. God has gone before us and outlined how we would relate to him. So as we see texts like this, God's terms are good. They're desirable. They're full of good promises. But a question to ask yourself is what kind, of, what kind of relationship do you have with God? What kind of agreement do you think you have with God? What is your relationship with God based on? Is it a covenant for which he has laid out the terms in, in his word? Or do you think you have your own arrangement with God? Maybe your own arrangement where certain things are allowed that maybe other Christians wouldn't think so. Ones where certain aspects of his word can be ignored. Or, or maybe one where sin isn't quite such a big deal. God doesn't offer us an egalitarian relationship with him. God doesn't compromise with his creatures. He is the creator. We are the creatures. He engages with us on his terms, not ours. Not only are we creatures, we are fallen creatures. And in the new covenant, when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's not making a threat. He's making a promise. In the new covenant, there is, there is provision for when we sin. Jesus Christ is our great high priest, which we see at the, at the beginning of Hebrews 8. But there is also internal power to keep God's commands. There's a transformational effect God means to have. He means to change us into something. Second, in the new covenant, the law is written on our hearts. In Christ, we are free to live out the main intent of God's law, which is love God and love neighbor. That is the opposite of what we do by nature. By nature, our sinful nature, we don't love God. And we're happy to use our neighbors for whatever they can benefit us with. But is your understanding of justification by grace alone, is that leading to a greater love for God and others? Uh, is, the law, is the law being written on your heart? Are your affections and desires changing? Has, has Christianity freed you from self-love and self-rule so that you can love God and others? Or has it provided you an excuse to live however you want? Has Christianity freed you to continue in sin or freed you to flee from sin? God does not change us instantaneously. But this is why it's important to see steady growth in the Christian life and why it's good to ask regularly, what is the state of my heart? What do I love Finally, the old covenant is obsolete and vanishing away. 
You are not okay. You are not okay as you are. You do need to change. God is not in the business of of accepting you just as you are. No questions asked. You be you and live you. And, And he's just there to support your effort to be the best you that you can be. That is not the gospel. That is the gospel of the society we live in, but that is not the terms that God has laid out for us. You are not okay as you are. He does not accept you as you are. But a religious system cannot change you. Even the Old Covenant, Old Testament system cannot change you. It is obsolete and vanishing away. Your heart is corrupted and the law cannot change your heart. Your relationship with God comes through a changed heart that you get from union with Christ. And if you want that, trust in Christ alone who died for sin. And turn away from your sin trusting that God will change your heart. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we were made to be in relationship with you. We were made to, com- to, to be in communion with you. We acknowledge that we have broken your covenant and your laws. And so our relationship with you is severed if we look to our own works. So Father, we rejoice that you are determined to rescue us and be in relationship with us. And we thank you for your new covenant promises that assure us that our relationship does not depend on the list of sins that we have not done or a list of virtues that we're pursuing, the religious knowledge we have stored up, or even the temperature of our hearts for you at any given moment. The foundation of our relationship with you is Jesus Christ, our righteousness, our wrath bearer. So that in Christ, you do change us by the Spirit writing your law on our hearts. We have access to you, the the least of us to the greatest. And in Christ, you remember our sins no more, finally and forever. You are our God, and we are your people. In Jesus' name, amen.